You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Hi, and welcome to this episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. It is a production between Go Wild and Gumbroker.com. I'm your host, Logan Medish of High Caliber History. Uh, this podcast, we talk about all sorts of things, interesting, unusual, weird, wacky, military, civilian, a little bit of everything. If it's guns, we cover it. Um, I'm joined here at the table by some of the folks from Go Wild. I'm joined here with Alan from Gumbroker.com. And this week is a fun topic. It is everybody's favorite topic. Tacos. Second. Sorry. Second. Second. Still thinking about lunch. I know. I know. But (laughs) man, were those tacos good? It was good stuff. Yeah. No, not tacos. Ah. So everybody's second favorite thing. Gotcha. Machine guns. Ah. Yeah. I like it. Who doesn't love a good machine gun? We just worked the Star Spangled Banner in right here, and (laughs) Eagle Screech. Yeah. That's right. A little bit of. I should have said cheeseburgers. (laughs) A <laughs> <laughs> little bit of Francis Scott Key, some F-16s flying overhead. You know, yes. that's, a, that's in the show budget, right? Yeah. 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 We yeah. Totally... We'll fix it in post. It's fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll fix it. That's yeah. right. AI. <laughs> AI, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's going to take all of our jobs. Oh. You guys won't need me if, you, if you're doing AI, you know. <laughs> um, so, no, but we're going to talk machine guns, and, and we're going to go over, you know, the history of them and how we get to where we're going. And um, we talked before we started rolling that this probably will have to be uh, a multi-part episode just because there's so much to to talk about uh, in the world of machine guns. Um, but it's interesting to note that what people, at least I think it's interesting, what people tend to think of as early machine guns aren't actually machine guns. Um, for example, the Gatling gun. You know, Richard Gatling comes out with the Gatling gun and it's around in the Civil War era in the 1860s. And people think, oh, you know, it's a machine gun. It's not like oh well is it semi-automatic well no it's it's not is you know it, it's hand cranked and and you're getting a shot each time you're cranking from these multiple barrels and so it's operating like you think uh, a machine gun should operate uh, in those senses um, and certainly how you see the design like with a minigun that is a machine gun and all those barrels rotating around um, but Gatling guns aren't machine guns. Um, and I think that's that's an important distinction we need to make if, if folks aren't quite sure what is, what isn't a machine gun. You know, there's there's a lot of mystery in the NFA world uh, and on, in which machine guns lie. And I think people don't totally understand mm-hmm. um, what incorporates a machine gun and what doesn't. So a Gatling gun is not a machine gun. Hopefully we've answered a dumb question, right? You know? So what do you want to call it? A Gatling it's gun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a Gatling gun. A cranker. Yeah. Uh, oh, I like that. It's a cranker. Yeah. We're going to say a good time. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they are a good time. Yeah. They're a lot of fun. I've had had a chance to shoot a few of them. They are a ton of fun. Um, but, you know, after your arm gets going with that, I tell you, it is not a machine gun. It is surprisingly <laughs> stiff to crank. And that, that, it takes a pretty good amount of yeah. energy to turn yes, that turn. Yes, it does, especially to do it with any consistency mm-hmm. instead of like pop, 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 pop. You know, if you you got to get into you got to get into that rhythm, yeah, you get you a know? you know workout coming into it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's they're they're interesting. They're a lot of fun, but they're definitely not machine guns. You know, you don't truly get machine guns for another twenty years uh, with Hiram Maxim, um, and we're talking about Hiram S Maxim of the machine guns and not Hiram P Maxim of the suppressors. I was going to ask mm. about that. I knew you were. You're just. I'm here for the details. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to hold you, you know, just making sure that you're up to par. Yep. I could. I could hear it before I even said it. Brad's like, "What's the middle initial? Logan? Which <laughs> one are we talking about?" Uh, no, but they are related, right? Uh, and, and then the the brother uh, is is involved with TNT. So it's a whole family of explosives. Uh, the Maxim family is really interesting, like that. But Thanksgiving was so much fun at their house. Oh boy, <laughs> you ain't kidding. Nobody ate turkey, but it was everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so Hiram Maxim comes out with the machine guns. He's he's developing them uh, in the 1880s, um, and there is a, a bit of a story. Who knows if it's actually true or not? But uh, Maxim was told, you know, if you want to make a pile of money, develop a gun that'll allow the Europeans to just absolutely slaughter one another. And uh, who knows? Maybe that was said. Maybe it wasn't said. If it was said, maybe it was a joke. Well, if someone was joking, Hiram did not take it as a joke. And he set out and built the Maxim machine gun. Mm-hmm. And that sets the stage for basically all machine gunnery that we know. I mean, we okay, we can't exclude John Moses Browning in this, you know, because uh, he did have some things to play with the, the Colt 1895, the potato digger, you know, and then, of course, the Modus and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But but it all starts with Hiram Maxim. Well, and not just that, but, I mean, Maxim also changed the complete face of what we think of as warfare and tactics as well, too. Absolutely. Uh, you know, because World War One is, is the first conflict that we're using machine guns with tremendous effect, uh, and it, it is an absolute game changer. I mean, you've got a war where people are going into it on horseback coming up against tanks. Wearing bright red uniforms. Wearing bright red <laughs> uniforms, yeah. You know, it, it, it absolutely changes the face of warfare forever. You know, what we're doing on the field of battle today mm-hmm. is built upon what didn't work in World War One. right? So, so how big was the first Maxim machine gun? Was it a large... Yes, yeah, they're large. Um, they are big tripod-mounted guns. They are heavy. Uh, one of the prototypes is in the National Museum of the Marine Corps in Triangle, Virginia. Uh, I've got to check that one out. Um, and it's, I mean, it's big, you know, and it's a big metal block and, and a big wooden ammo box to feed out of. And um, it is not something that you're picking up and moving to a new position, you know. It, you have a machine gun position, and that's where that machine gun is going, you know. It's it's a far cry from, you know, even from the BAR, the Browning Automatic Rifle, or it's a far cry from, you know, the, the 249 mm-hmm. saw and stuff like that. You know, the it, they were a totally different ball game in the beginning. They were not easy to move around. The, the crew served. They were definitely a crew served. I was going to ask, like, how many, how many people are Right, yeah, running. you're definitely – you know two three sometimes you know because you need guys you need someone to hump the gun the tripod the ammo you know it is it is a crew served weapon but in a very different concept of a crew served weapon today and even different from the tactics so then the field of fire you'd have the gunner who's operating you know the trigger basically and the feeder making sure the 
else fit, but then you'd have another man down there just turning the turret, so you just swept slowly mm. back and forth across no man's land and just put literally a sheet of lead down there, making it, you know, well, the standstill that World War One became. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and that leads us into the development of what we get in World War II. Uh, you know, we, we I had briefly mentioned the, the M2, you know, the, the Ma Deuce, and that's a gun that is still being used today, you know. Uh, and so that's, that's a design that's pushing a century old. Um, and, you know, it, it's no more iconic than a 50 caliber Ma Deuce, you know, chugging along. I mean, I think that's a testament to that gun that they're still being used all these years later. And in so many ways. I mean, you've got them on aerial platforms, on mounted platforms, you know, on just crew-served, you know, individual person platforms. Yep, guys on Humvees with them and, and all sorts of stuff. They're they're an incredibly versatile gun, but again, also not a small gun. Uh, that is definitely a large machine gun still, even though there are accounts uh, of some guys in World War II actually managing to pick them up and carry them and, like, hip-fire them, you know, when, when shit got a little too real, you know, and they needed to be able to move and lay down some fire. You find a way to, to you know, life uh, uh, finds a way, you know, and you, you pick up that Modus and, and you run and gun with it. Adrenaline is a hell of a drug. Exactly. Yeah. You know, whereas the BAR was what you should have been running and gunning with. That's what it was designed for, you know, a box-fed 30-06, not a belt-fed 50 cal. I'm thinking about it strategically. Like a lot of, <clears throat> you know, the time period you're talking about, late 1800s, these are kind of replacing what would have been where your cannon fire would have been, right? Like I'm thinking of Civil War, how important a ridge line that yep, uh, yeah. would have been. This really took over that, I imagine, you know, strategically, right? Is that kind of what they would? Because I mean, it's the same same strength, you know, from a vantage point. You know, you you mentioned light laying down mm-hmm. that line of fire. Mm-hmm. You know, you, that's your stopping point that a cannon really w- was pri- up until this point, right? It gives you a little bit more precision than like grape shot or a canister round would do, which is essentially just a glorified giant shotgun. Right, right. But yeah, I mean, you know, you, like you're talking about being up on a hillside, you know, before you'd want the cannon to be up on the hillside mm-hmm. for your artillery fire. You know, it's not uncommon in, in the 1870s and 80s, you know, out in the plains during the Indian Wars, you know, you put that Gatling up on a hill and, and you, you've got this awful field of fire with that yeah. Gatling rain in town that that would have previously been your artillery range field, you know, field of fire with grape shot and stuff. Mm-hmm. And now you're doing it with a gr- uh, crank Gatling gun um, and just laying down a tremendous amount more firepower. Certainly more cost effective. And, you know, like you said, you can, you know, run through belts of ammo as opposed to the just the load time on mm-hmm. an artillery piece. Of that era, especially. Yep, and it's, and there's not the precision and the math and the things you need to know with trajectory and stuff. Right. It's just it's an easier way to to run it. You know, where do we go from here? You're the historian, <laughs> man. Don't ask me and Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> We're like lunch tacos. Right. <laughs> lunch tacos. Yeah. Um, you know. So yeah. So we've covered you know the the M2. You know, we've covered some of the ally stuff, but in in Germany. You know, we've got the MG42, which is another incredibly iconic machine gun uh, of World War II um, and just an absolute powerhouse of a machine gun. There have been so many designs that kind of build upon that gun into what we've seen today. Um, and, and in fact, those guns are still, some of their descendants are mm-hmm. still being fielded. The M60. Um, the M60, right. You know, those guns are still being used, um, and we're still finding them. In fact, I, I've seen uh, news accounts um, of some of the stuff that's going on, you know, over with Russia and Ukraine. MG42 is yeah. still being mm. used, you know. Um, and But that's 
the MG42 kind of gives us um, the design and, and the, the thought process for for what we get with more of a man-portable machine yeah, the, the gun. Light machine kind of yeah. what I was saying a second ago, you know, you have, you know, you get to a high point, they would build these machine gun nests. Is this what they were running on a lot of those famous machine gun nests when you travel through Europe? Is that kind of what they would bring in to set up that kind of stronghold? Uh, not not like the M2 or, or okay. anything like that, uh, at least not in, in the time period that yeah. I'm thinking. You know, that's going to be more of like the Maxim MG08s and okay. stuff like that, like in the World War One era and stuff. Okay. Yeah, the, the Browning was really designed as an anti-material weapon. It was designed to take out Jeeps, light-armored tanks, personnel carriers, aircraft, where the, the MG08 and the uh, MG42 were really anti-personnel firearms. You know, the 42 had such a reputation because of its high rate of fire. They called it, what, Hitler's buzzsaw or something mm-hmm. like that, yep. that the U.S. military created training films specifically to desensitize and indoctrinate recruits to that sound um still they're out there on youtube you can find them and it's you know joe gi walking through you know whatever and he hears they, they've got and it's a very distinctive sounding uh, rate of fire telling them you know it's just don't be scared do your job but it was such a terrifying psychological weapon that the military had to counteract that yep Absolutely. And then we get other machine guns that have some, some interesting feed designs. You know, we've talked about belt-fed stuff, and we've talked about box-fed, um, but there's some interesting pan magazine designs, and, mm. and the two that come to mind are the Lewis gun and the DP-28. And so this is ammo that is mounted cylindrically, for lack of a better term, uh, in a big circular pan magazine that is mounted on the gun um they're very distinctive looking mm-hmm. um and and so you've got the lewis gun being used in in world war one and in world war two um the lewis gun's actually getting mounted on a lot of planes yep. uh they they take off the barrel jackets so that they're turning them into air-cooled guns on the planes to make it a little more efficient that way yeah that top that top pan magazine was really conducive to the confined spaces of an aircraft yep exactly a lot easier to just switch out the pans than mm-hmm. having to you know carry in a bunch of ammo boxes right. and belts of ammo you know you're in a very confined space in that plane um so that that is much more conducive in there um and then of course you know we get beyond world war ii and we get you know into the the vietnam era and stuff if the show budget can afford it this is when ccr's fortunate son starts playing <laughs> in the background you know we'll just um, let them you put that together in your own head <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah uh yeah and, and and we get some some more iconic guns in there uh like the m60 the pig um very popular machine gun um, and called the pig for a good reason, right, Alan? It is it is a big chunk of metal, but I, I got to tell you, I've spent some time on them, and they are that weight pays off. It is more probably the most controllable machine gun I've ever been fortunate to shoot. Um, you can just put the rounds wherever you want to, just walk right across. Um, I can see what the guy. I mean, it always went to the big guy in the battalion because that's mm-hmm. who had to carry it. But um, you know, the small some of the smaller versions like the E2, uh, the guys who carried them loved them. They hated giving them up. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, and you do hear stories like, oh, you know, oh, I hated lugging that gun around. But yeah, but when it came time for shit to hit the fan, who you want on your side? You want the guy who's humping the pig around, you know, because that that gun that can lay down some serious firepower. Yeah, and seven six two, it was it packed a little bit of a punch, oh, just it? a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it was no slouch. I mean, comparatively though, sounds like a much while while big, sounds like a much more mobile 
gun than what we've kind of laid out up until now. So quite the innovation compared to the first, you know, four or five that you've kind of talked through right. here. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, even though the M60 is, is a beast of a piece, um, uh, all day long I would rather carry an M60 than to try to take a Maxim yeah. off of its mount and right. hump that thing around, you know. Um, that's Even though the M60 is a big bitch, it was designed to be, you know, man carried yeah. and port. You know, it was designed to be a portable weapon. It's not like people were having to retrofit and try to figure out yeah. how they're going to hump around a modus and stuff. You know, with machine guns, it's all about controlling heat. And in the early days, they would have water jackets, basically a big canister that went around your barrel filled with water. You'd have a canister of water and a hose system to get it circulating through, so you could shoot rates of fire without melting your barrel. If you didn't have that, it was burst fire, and you really limited your, your cyclical rate. Well, with an M60, it featured a quick-change barrel system, so you could run a pretty high rate of fire, and when that barrel started getting too hot, you could pretty quickly change it out for a new one and keep the keep the gun up and running. Right, exactly. So how are you taking that barrel off that's extremely hot? You had some very big insulated Nomex mitts that came mm, with part of the kit. And they just... Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of. Uh, basically, it's a rotation handle that pop kind of slides forward and out the side. You jam in the new barrel, comes in closed, locks into place. Keep in mind, with a machine gun, we're not talking PRS here. You know, you're not trying to be super precise. You're talking volume of fire. So yeah. you can have kind of a quick and dirty barrel change system. Exactly. Yeah, and, you're you know, talking about the, the water-cooled stuff, you know, that's why I was mentioning with the Lewis gun. It was popular on aircraft because they would take the water jacket off, and now the barrel is exposed, but you're flying through mm-hmm. the air at, you know, however many miles an hour or a bi-wing can fly, I don't know, but it's enough that it's your air cooling that barrel uh, on, on a what should be a water-cooled machine gun, um, which is actually a pretty cool innovation, you know. Was, uh, I thought I think that's a kind of a, a cool adaptation of technology at that time, you know. I mean, aircraft is brand new being used in World War One, and then they're taking these machine guns and adapting them. Uh, to fit their needs, because there's no way you were going to cram in a bi-wing plane with gallons of water as right. well to try to cool your machine gun, you know. Um, so that's that's an interesting innovation and way that they yeah. were doing things with that. It, it took the aircraft from a observation platform, really just trying to see what the enemy was doing, and turned it in, in 1915, 1916, observation. By 1941, it was an offensive weapon. Right. Mm-hmm. It was the sharp tip of the spear. Right. So just in that 30-year period, by being able to arm those aircraft, it completely changed their use in the military. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Jacob, you had a fantastic question that was, uh, I'm sure, is in the mind of many people. You had mentioned it before we started filming. So what is your question, my friend? Yeah, and and I'm sure some people have Googled this and tried to figure it out. Um, But I don't know the answer to this question, and I would love to own a machine gun. What do I got to do to be able to get one? What price range are we talking about for somebody that wants to get into a machine gun? And, you know, what does that picture look like sure well i will i'll talk to the the legal side of it and i'll let you talk to the money side of it um so machine guns are heavily regulated uh we'll we'll dispel the myth that machine guns are illegal okay they are not illegal they're heavily regulated um they fall under the jurisdiction of the national firearms act of 1934 so the nfa you hear them called nfa items um they're often called class three weapons um, but it's important to know people talk about, Oh, I got to have a class three license. 
That is a total mishmash of terms. There's no such thing as a class three license. Okay. Uh, what you have to do is that gun needs to be registered as an item on the NFA. And so you will have to go, you'll have to determine if you want to take possession of it as an individual, as a corporation or as a trust. Um, those are all different legal entity ways of owning it. There are benefits and drawbacks to each, but so you'll figure out how you want to take possession of your new machine gun. Um, you will have to fill out uh, the Form 4 uh, application for the transfer of the machine gun. You'll have to submit fingerprints and a photograph, and you'll go through a big background check process, and you'll pay a $200 federal tax stamp. Uh, and then God, months and months and months and months and months later uh, of waiting, you know, you're talking 10 months to a year or more of waiting the government will finally bless you with an approved form that comes back and now you can finally take possession of that machine gun that you paid for to the seller on gunbroker.com months and months and months and months and months ago. Um, so that's how you do it. It's a lot of government paperwork and hoops to jump through, um, but none of it's intimidating. You know, it, it shouldn't be intimidating. Once you understand what you're doing, that you're filling out paperwork, you're going through a background check like you would buying any other gun on a 4473 and stuff. Um, it's just different that it costs you more, uh, you know, in terms of the tax stamp. Uh, and you got to submit fingerprints that you normally don't have to do with a 4473. Um, and then you just got to wait, you know. Um, but the big thing beyond all the paperwork, the paperwork's easy to come up with. Money, on the other hand, for yep. most of us, is the hard thing to come up with. So, Alan, what are some of the more popular machine guns going for on GunBroker.com? So, I took a look this morning. Um, you know, what we consider some of our entry-level guns, which are, you know, a lot of World War II surplus pieces like Sten guns, like Sterling's, um, the M3 grease guns. Your super fun gun, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yep, super simple. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's called a grease gun because, frankly, it's almost made out of grease gun parts. Um you're probably looking around five figures in the eight to nine thousand dollar for a starting price for something in okay shape. If you're looking for something a little more familiar, um, like a, a transferable M16, MP5, my personal favorite, the Uzi. Now you're looking in that fifteen to twenty thousand dollar range. But you know, obviously things go up and get really esoteric and, and wild from there. Um, you know, I did see an M, a full auto M2 move the other day for fifteen thousand. I'm sorry, that was the semi-auto, not even a full auto. I was going to say, really? Yeah, Let me know where. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> no, uh, the semi-automatic version of uh, of the the M2 moved for fifteen, and that was a really active. A lot of bidders going on that one, driving it hard and heavy. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, one thing I will say about this, the process and the paperwork, though, I'm sure a lot of folks listening have, like most of us have in the last ten years, jumped on the suppressor train and bought suppressors, mm -hmm. it's the exact same process. Right. So everything you went through for that, which certainly is a little bit of a pain, but, you know, like you said, it's not really that intimidating. You just got to figure out the process. It's the exact same process. So if you bought a silencer in the past or a suppressor, you're already prepared to buy a machine gun. Yep. Yep. You just, you just got to do it all over again. It's, again, like with the suppressor, you know, I went through all this and paid my $200 when I bought my first suppressor. What do you mean I can't just buy another one? You got to go yeah. through the whole thing. Again. It's the same way with machine guns. You know, you got to do that whole process multiple times, depending on how many $20,000 machine guns you yeah. can afford. You know. Now, if you don't want to get into the machine gun, but you still want the look and feel, mm -hmm. there are a number of companies that make semi-auto versions. We talked about a Modus, but FNM maybe five or six years ago, introduced a semi-automatic version of their 249 saw, oh. uh, the 249S. I, we see these sell every single day on, on gun brokers. They're out there. They're available. 
Um, there's both new and used inventory, pretty good supply of both. New, you're going to look around $9,500. Used is a great value. You're going to take a quarter of the price off that. They're going for around $7,500. You can get into some crazy additions, though. Um, we did see one move last year. It was a number 176 of 200 special collector's edition. Um, it went for a mere $160,000 oh. for a semi-auto. Jump change. But, I mean, at the end of the day, you're still getting a belt-fed. Um, it'll still, you know, run, you know, as quick as your Mark One actuating device will get it to run. <laughs> and it still brings up, in my mind, the biggest challenge of owning a machine gun. Not the cost of buying it, not the cost <laughs> of the paperwork, the cost of feeding it. Yeah. Boy, do they go through the ammunition. You think teenagers are expensive to feed. <laughs> Try feeding a machine gun. 600 know. rounds a minute? Yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to shoot yeah. for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it, it, 20 minutes? Boy, you got deep pockets. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like shooting for like two minutes, you know. Like, I, I just can't afford it, you I, know. That's what we were talking before. At, at one point, somebody made a full-auto version of the Ruger 1022, mm-hmm. and I've been told it just vibrates it doesn't even recoil just <laughs> and i can afford a lot of 22 ammunition right so i, I that's what i'm keeping my eyes out on uh, for yeah. on gun brokers one of those guys if i wanted an, an affordable to feed machine gun i'm going with the grease gun that we, that we had mentioned um it, it, very simple gun you know it was stamped out of sheet metal parts during world war ii fires from an open bolt chambered in 45 acp uh and it just it chugs along you know like like with an uzier or an mp5 it's just like you know and it's done not the case with the grease gun it chugs it's like to the point where like when i was firing it like i was watching where i'm hitting and like walking my fire onto target you know because it just it's so low recoil and it's a relatively low uh rate of fire that you know one i can afford to feed it because it's going slower um and and it's just it's it's a ton of fun to shoot you know if you've got someone who's intimidated by you know fast machine guns and you know the, the noise and everything i would say a grease gun's a great you know one to, to turn someone on to because it's so much fun to shoot them and it's low speed it's um, 45 too because to, to me 45 has such a gentle you know recoil impulse exactly. that it's, it's just a, like you said it's a chug exactly but it's, it's such a simple gun they don't even have a charging handle there's a little indentation where you're supposed to put your thumb and use that to run the bolt back and forth right. it really was the ingenuity of american manufacturing in world in wartime what can we make a lot of quickly cheaply and effectively yep exactly and along the same line in in terms of the caliber with the 45 you know we talked about the the thompson uh, in in our gangster mobster episode you know and again that being in 45 acp and it's a heavy gun you know there's very little felt recoil on something like that even when you're holding the trigger back and running it in full auto you're still not you know it's not going to be something that you have to be afraid of you know losing control and it running away mm-hmm. from you um you're, you're just not going to face that you know you and i were at a media event one time and somebody was shooting a full auto was, i think it was a poma event okay <clears throat> And I, yeah. right up the right up the it, I, I can't remember what venue we were at, but they had those low overhanging oh. ceilings to to honestly catch this scenario, but just zipped right up onto the wall, and mm. you could see it wasn't the first time it's happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's always the best. We always say it, it goes target, target, berm, berm, airplane, airplane, airplane. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we're back to World War One yeah. machine guns. You know? yeah, that's right. <laughs> Oh, man. So, you know, the machine gun stuff is fun to talk about, and, and obviously we can find that stuff uh, on Gunbroker, but there's a lot of interesting, weird things sometimes that pop up on Gunbroker. What is an interesting piece that has sold on Gunbroker recently? 
If you've never seen the SIG Master Series pistols, you need to do a Google search. Okay. These are done by the literal artisans over in their Germany factory, and they are just insane. Really? Um, we've we had them on display at SHOT Show in the past. Um, they're absolutely stunning pieces. Uh, you'll have one where the front side is a trout coming out of the stream and the rear side is the bear going after it. It Incredible craftsmanship. Uh, we had one of those X5 pistols move a couple of days ago for just a little over $12,000. Oh, wow. But these are, I mean, you're not really buying a firearm. You're truly buying a work of art. So yeah. I seriously jump on the Google, hit the image search, just look for your SIG Master Shop series. They're, they're works of art. That's awesome. Boy, a trout and a bear. Like that, to me, as he was saying it, I was like, there needs to be I a go that. wild edition. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't even fish, but like, uh, you know, but the fish front sight and the bear, like, that would be really cool. Yeah, the fish's tail lined up for that. And then the bears, I believe the bear's paws were up in those rear, rear sight. It was sweet. It's insane. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, that is definitely, that, uh, file that under things I didn't know I needed, right? <laughs> Learning all kinds of stuff on this yeah. one. It's one if you have to ask the price, you can't afford it. Yeah. Well, I won't ask. I already know I can't afford it, you know. Awesome. Well, guys, thanks for joining us here around the table for this episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. Appreciate everyone tuning in to the show. Hope you learned something today. Hope maybe it sparked an interest. Um, you know, don't forget to log your time in the Go Wild app that you spent listening to this podcast. And definitely go over to gumbroker.com and look up some of these things. You never know. You may find yourself a really good deal. Um, and then you can add it to your gearbox and go wild once you pick it up. Uh, so uh, every, everybody wins, right? You get a new gun. You get to log it in go wild. You get to buy it off Gunbroker. It's a beautiful thing. So <laughs> America. America. <laughs> America. Freedom. Yep. So, all right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning into this episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. We will see you on the next episode.